0: You're listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Greetings and welcome to episode 4 of Lave Radio, the show that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, Fozor Forrester, and as always, joining me in the Sidewinder cockpit tonight, the madman in charge of corporate advertising, Chris Jarvis. Hello. The fiction guru and everyone's favourite nutty professor, Alan Stroud. Thanks, Foz. And the not-really-well-enough-to-be-podcasting, John Staple Diet.
1: Thank you. Staple Diet.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Greetings, all. How are we all doing? Everybody okay?
1: Um, I've got tonsillitis, so it's going to be new for me. I'm only going to speak when I need to.
0: Right, so we're expecting a quiet podcast from you then, John, yes?
1: Well, I, I can't make any promises. but. <laughs>
0: so what, I take it you're all tucked up in bed with a nice lozenge and your, 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 your lemon-sip tea?
1: Um, I have been all day, uh, but I've come downstairs because obviously the boy's in bed, so um, I don't want to wake him up. Laughing at your fantastic jokes, <laughs> I,
2: I, I, I'm picturing John here with uh, pajamas on and that that little kind of little kind of hat, you know, the one with the the, the sort of bell on the end, uh, the lozenge <laughs> in his mouth, and uh,
1: you seem to be confusing me with one of Santa's elves. <laughs>
0: <laughs> we definitely appreciate the effort, mate. So fair play to you, Alan. What have you been up to, mate?
2: It's uh, been a difficult week. Um, quite a lot to do. Uh, obviously. Lave Revolution is, is ticking on, and uh, we've got uh, more and more funding. We've, we've crossed the, uh, the stretch goal line for the first stretch goal, which is great. So a few people have managed to upgrade their paperbacks to hardbacks, which is nice. Um, and what I've been doing myself, uh, today I was rebuilding a spaceship set that one of my students decided to build in one of the studios and decided to build it quite unsafely. <laughs> so I've had to go back and rebuild it, so it's a little bit safer. Um, which has been an absolutely uh, exhausting day, but um, never mind. It's all, all good, and it's something that possibly I can use in the summer, and something the other students
0: can use later on. So what is it? Is it a full spaceship? Is it a cockpit? Is it? It's the
2: cockpit. He's he's basically he's taken a load of MDF and battens and just made stage flats, and then um, sprayed them and added computer uh, components. Uh, to the sides and what have you. Um, you've got like a <laughs> there's a little TV remote control that flips out. That's like the data pad on the front, and then there's a slot for a um, for a, an iPad or a you know a seven inch tablet to to sort of slot in at the front as well, which is quite nice. Um, and then there's an intercom on the side, which is the back of a, a network router um, and a couple of other bits and pieces. So it's yeah, 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 it's it's quite good. And when it's lit
0: correctly, it looks really cool. Awesome. Chris, what about you, mate? What have you been up to this week?
3: I've been uh, rehearsing for my play uh, and learning lines a lot in a lot of my spare time, basically just learning as many lines as I can, because uh, I have a section of about four or five pages uh, that seems to be just me talking and the other guy in the play just sort of sitting and nodding. Um, nice. Do you want to play? The other complication is that it's set in uh, Central Park, so I have to work on my uh, general American pronunciation. So that's been another challenge uh, because every now and again you come across a word that's just really hard to say, uh, and you have to kind of drop out and think, well, well, how do I say a word like that? It's, it, it's kind of hard. So that's what I've been doing.
0: Nice, mate. Do you want to pimp your play?
3: Yeah, well, we're doing a production of Zoo Story, uh, which is by Albie, uh, and that's at the Wheat Sheaf Players in Coventry. So if anyone's in the Coventry area, uh, come see us. It. It'll be great.
0: Strangely enough, actually, for my job, I do actually cover the Coventry area, so uh, I might just stop by and catch that. <laughs> But yes, excellent. Obviously, we've got another week, another two podcasts released. Uh, Both of them have been really well received. A massive thank you to John Harper for taking part in the writer's interview one. Um, And a massive thank you to Alan, actually, for getting up in early, early hours of the morning in order to do the interview across New Zealand. And say both of those were really, really well received. Uh, Apologies about the late release of episode three. We had a bit of a nightmare recording the episode, so it went out a little bit late. But quite a few people have been asking us what the plan is for the releases of the episodes going forward. We we are still planning on doing these every fortnight. Uh, It just so happens that Frontier have been releasing so much information. that If we tried to go to every fortnight at the moment, it would literally be a two or three hour long podcast. And uh, nobody's better halves are going to let us do that. So just at the moment, it's going to be weekly with writer interviews interspersed. So, we're going to hear a word from our sponsor, and after that we'll go straight into the news section.
3: Oh, boy, space it's cold in here.
2: That Commander has a cheek sitting up in his cosy and warm cockpit while we haul radioactives around his cargo bay.
4: Oh, is it cold? I had not noticed. Oh,
2: that's right. Why, you're not even
4: shivering. Maybe it's because I picked up this North Coast cargo bay sweater. It keeps me warm and stylish. Say, so that is a nice jumper. It's made from the finest Verex wool and handcrafted by novitiates in the underground monasteries of Van Marnen's Star. Wow! Where can I get one?
3: New North Coast cargo bay sweaters. Be the envy of your friends. Wow every lady from here to the Empire. Be warm and toasty even on the tenth planet of a dying star. Now on sale at Spark and Mensa.
4: Better now? Better? Why, I feel so warm I'll probably never catch man flu again
3: spark and mensa because nothing says sexy like a neck-high jumper
0: okay so in the news this week we're covering two topics the first one being the second development newsletter that came out in the newsletter we've got the sidewinder taking it from concept to 3d models we have ship styles uh, this week going into the imperial uh, concept designs we've got some information on the federation cruisers and um, some information on the planets. so starting off what do you guys reckon to the sidewinder concept
1: I liked it, even though it's a small ship and everyone would probably be hoping to outgrow it pretty quickly. I thought it looked good. I mean, I I, I just can't wait to uh, leave Lave Station driving that.
2: Yeah, I like it too. I think you know, it, it's always as, as it has been before. You've got a little bit of sort of Cobra style look to to what's there and all the, the extra detail on the top of the, the original model is great. I think it, it really does, you know, sort of it sets a tone doesn't it for the, the way in which we want this game to be and the way in which Frontier wants this game to be and it really does lend itself so that that original polygon shape is now really built on and really sort of has a style. Um, I, think it's a, I think it's muscular I think it's strong and, you know, and I think it's a really really good look
0: Yeah well I mean talking about the, the style from the information in the newsletter it's, it's actually going to be an independent ship so it's allied with the Independent. Also very much falls in line with their style, which is very utilitarian. And I was trying to balance it out as well by looking at it. And from the look of the guy that's standing underneath it, it looks like it's going to be about three single-decker buses in terms of width and length. And it tapers off into the wings. So what we were talking about last week and the idea that um, a ship's actually going to be described as a, as a yacht... Um, how much of that sort of space do you think is going to be sort of living area and how much of it is going to be sort of cargo area?
2: well that depends a little bit on how they elect to implement the you know, the, the gravity situation and the inertial compensation. The sidewind has always been the vessel of choice for pirates that 's always been part of the history and uh, and that you know that 's sort of continued and maintained within uh, the history that uh, that we 've been working on so having having that that style of, of rough, rugged and robust concept you know, sort of modelling, then I think that's really cool. In terms of what space is what, I guess they're going to look at the pointers that they had in the previous games and make some decisions about you know, how they're going to uh, pull it together for this one.
0: Yeah, I mean, they are certainly looking at um, trying to do sort of 3D uh, models that sort of have cutaways. So in the fullness of time, you can actually walk around these ships, can't you? So there will be a designated cargo hold. There'll be a cockpit section it would be interesting to see a cutaway of the sidewind to see exactly what space is on that ship.
3: And it'll be interesting to see how that works because in the previous game, well, certainly in Frontier, my memories of Elite are a little bit more vague, but certainly in Frontier, your internal storage, you have this idea that there is a certain tonnage that you can install things in and or keep cargo. And you sort of get this idea from that that it's just this big hollow ship, regardless of whether you're adding a bigger engine or whether you're loading on some fruit and veg it all just contributes to that one sort of tonnage of internal storage. But actually looking at these, these are very practical and very functional designs. So there must be some element of placement of where these engines are going to be and placement of where the cargo is. Because um, the, the thing that it was really funny when I was looking at this newsletter, because I looked at the first few pictures and I was thinking, where's the door? Where's the door? <laughs> where's the door? And then I got down to the bottom picture and there was a ladder. And I was like, brilliant, There's a ladder. Uh, and that kind of answered my question. But it's, it's that sort of thing. It's almost like now they've made it so real, you have to think about where this internal storage actually needs to be. I was having a chat with John actually in the week and we were saying how fun it would be if, if you almost had a, like a view of the ship where you could decide where to place your systems. Because there's been this discussion about targeting internal systems on the ship. And it would be almost be really interesting if they weren't in the same place on everybody's ship.
0: So you had actually to you scan a ship down to try and figure out where all the subsystems were.
3: Absolutely. That'd be great.
2: Yeah, no. well, the, the, the concept in the, the history is that uh, the Watton-Prittany Python was the first of uh, the new modular design ships to be released in um 2700 ad and the the idea always has been behind that design was always that it is a modular designed craft so every craft that was designed since then of the of the kind of individual entrepreneur explorer spacefarer has had that kind of modular put this in take this out concept of what's there i guess the
3: idea that you're suggesting chris would just take that one step further really Absolutely. There was a game called Infinite Space uh, that was on the DS. It was a turn-based spaceship trading combat game. Um, And with that, every ship that you had in your fleet had like a little shape inside the craft where you could add systems. And then each of the systems you'd buy were almost shaped like sort of Tetris blocks. So there was like a little sub game. It wasn't just a case of whether you had the space. It was a case of whether you could rotate these systems and actually make them fit but it did mean that between two ships, you know, all the different things were in different places.
2: Well, it's also a concept that's used a lot in 4D space games, where you know you're designing your own thing based off a, an initial model, and you're deciding in slots what uh, what's going where. I, I would guess that if they were going to try and implement anything like it, then they would have to to do it in quite a, a more 3D, you know, sort of style. And you know, it's it's problematic to try and if you've got an engine that or, a, I don't know, a large cargo bay, or a, you know, an ECM generator that has a, a particular sort of size to it and a particular shape to it, it's a bit difficult to fit it in a, in a cramped box, I guess. So, you know, it might be tricky. Um, and, of course, they'd have to, to codify that all down. So, you know, to work out what sections would fit with what, which would kind of be quite hard. But, you know, it's, it's a nice idea, though.
0: Uh, certainly, uh, uh, it's a great example of how they're trying to bring about the whole form factor actually being... Usable and being functional, which leads us on to the next point, which is the concept art for the Empire. And I don't think you could be more different between the sort of the functional versus the the art form. What have people thought of the the uh, the concepts for the Imperial ships?
3: I really like some of those.
1: Yeah, I'm, I mean, I'm hoping that we're going to see a return of the Imperial Courier and the Imperial Trader because I'd like to see how they're going to look in this game and if somebody is able to confirm <laughs> whether they'll be in the game or not. I could sleep a lot better
0: <laughs> Just to try and describe the, you know, the, the look and aesthetic of the Imperial ship, they're, they're almost bird-like with uh, very pronounced wing shapes. And most of them seem to have you know, what can only be described as, as a beak-like appearance for the cockpit. They certainly have a sort of organic look about them as well. And for those people that have actually played EVE Online, some of them certainly have a slight Armagh look about them as well. Uh, not to say that that's where they got inspiration from, but uh, they're definitely that sort of bird-like structures.
2: Well, they, they are beautiful. I'm, I'm afraid, John, I can't put your mind at rest in any way, shape, or form. Uh, <laughs>
0: but I'm sure that uh, iconic ideas
2: are are things that you know will probably follow through. So, you know, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't lose any sleep if I were you. The yeah, the design has a a theme to it. You've got you know this this wing. Sort of section, which uh, which just I think it's the, it's the strength of the, the the sort of pods on the wings that kind of give them this, this really dangerous look, mm. um, uh, along with the the beak like elements in the middle. But really, it is the angle and the the extra sort of it's almost like a, an elbow joint, isn't it? Really, um, or, yeah, or some yeah. sort of a wrist joint on uh, on the end of the wings, which you know is really threatening.
0: I was going to say that was uh, the thought that came to my mind. Maybe you can sort of throw some light in there. They all look very, very aggressive. And does that give us any indication, Alan, as to you know, maybe the, the, the normal stance of the, of the Empire, that they're quite an aggressive race? I, I don't know. Um, I know as much as you do. I, it's <laughs> very interesting to see how, you
2: know... At the end of the day, the stance of, of how they, the, yeah, the game premise at the very beginning for, for 3300 isn't something that, um, at this stage is you know, is, is formulated certainly to me or, or anybody else, so I would guess that um, that there are ideas in uh, in the frontier development studio of of how they're going to play that out. Um, I think really though they're just going to try and you know define different styles for the different factions because it certainly has been mentioned on the forums before that um in the past the the factions felt a little bit samey, um, mm. certainly in certain elements you know, just with different names. I think here you're seeing that um, the factions aren't samey, and I think as well frontier developments are going for the fact that the ships are the main cell, and so the culture and society is almost led by the ships, because at the end of the day, what do people play it for? They play it for the sim, for the experience, for the ships, for the look. And, you know... Much as my work and and other people's work on history, backstory, campaign, uh, novels, etc., etc., is all brilliant and is all you know. Well, I hope I hope it's brilliant. I'm (laughs) (laughs) I'm not bigging myself up. I'm bigging up you know excellent people like John Harper and uh, and Drew. But the point being here is that the chief sell has certainly got to be the ships because that's what people come to the game for. That's what they want to you know to to soak up. So. The societies, I guess, are going to be, you know, the ideas are going to be led by the ships. I think that's, you know, seeing the concept art's fantastic.
3: And it is what you associate with cultures in history. I mean, if I were to say to you, Viking longship or Chinese junk or like an American paddle steamer, you can immediately picture those old vessels and you know what societies those ships belong to. And it, you know, the, 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 the Viking longship says almost everything you need to know you know, in in a very broad sense, about the way the Vikings went to war uh, and the kind of aesthetic that they had in their 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 culture and their architecture and their art. It's almost all summed up in their seagoing vessels.
0: So, what exactly does the Chinese junk tell us, then, Chris?
3: I don't know enough about it. <laughs> <laughs> but it's but I mean, the Chinese junk is a it's a trading ship, isn't it? I mean, it's a very um, high broadside broadsided vessel. Um, presumably inside a junk, there is absolutely masses of space for just cargo and animals and food and hay and whatever it is that you're bringing around. And it's got that very iconic kind of slatted sail um, that is just, I mean, you see it and you immediately know sort of what it is and where it comes from. Or you could Um, talk
2: about about an American aircraft carrier or uh, a British battleship. Those kind of looks have a, a particular thing to them, don't they? Any sort of, I guess, mechanical constructed thing. Sometimes, you know, if you if you equate it to cars, there are cars that are specific of a specific culture. And there are um there are other devices that are specific of a specific culture. And I think that's kind of where we're getting here. It is nice to see these and I I certainly think that they will they will lead the way. And they have led the way already because this is the chief thing that most people know about these different cultures and about these different societies. This is what we've already seen, so this is the information that you already have, and therefore this is your starting point to start viewing the rest.
0: Yeah, well certainly, it looks like the the Imperial cruiser is certainly going to be an iconic ship. The concept art that they're showing about that in terms of what sort of weaponry it's going to hold, and the scale of the ship is absolutely phenomenal. Just doing my, uh, my idiot's maths here and trying to measure it against the anaconda that they've put in for scale. It looks anything from 10 to 15 times the size of the Anaconda. Now, given the fact that we saw the Anaconda, okay, so it was very sort of early development, but in the uh, in the Kickstarter videos, the Anacondas were big ships. When you compared them against the Vipers and Sidefinders, they were very, very big, very, very big ships. So to see one of these cruisers parked outside the space station, it's going to be phenomenal.
2: Well, it's almost a, a place to land, isn't it, really? Mm. So but, but, you might find that... Um, We'll be docking on those to, to receive certain missions. Well,
0: so it's a space station in
3: itself, isn't it?
0: Yeah. I was wondering what sort of roles these cruisers are actually going to take inside the game. I mean, are they just going to be window dressing? Are we going to see these things off in the distance? Or you know, are they actually going to engage you know, the, the NPCs or can they actually engage
3: us? I like Alan's suggestion that maybe Imperial cruisers are places that you go in order to pick up military missions. One of the things I always found a little bit odd about the world, you know, of of the games previously is that you would be in like a public bulletin board and the local armed forces had stuck a note up on someone's window saying, we're looking for someone to go and do this job. Um, It almost kind of makes sense that if you want to do military jobs, you should go to a place where the military are kind of planning and, and handing out these kind of assignments.
2: It creates another setup of privilege, doesn't it, as well? Because, you know, you might have to start with if you haven't. Uh, completed certain things then you don't have docking access and then gradually as you complete certain missions and manage certain other bits and pieces then um, you you get access to uh, to the cruisers
0: but it's interesting in what sort of direction that they're taking it these are obviously going to be weapons platforms and looking at the the diagram they've obviously listed turrets lasers missile batteries but did everybody spot the thing that they put right at the nose of the imperial cruiser where they've put powerful cannon question mark pointing forward now is that going to be some sort of super gun that we've never seen before and what do people think do they want to see uh cruisers with big old lasers on the front sort of star destroyers uh you know planet busting lasers or not well that imperial
2: cruiser does look like one big gun um, <laughs> so i guess whether that is uh you know a, a sort of a, a gun port or or anything else it does look like it anyway so you
0: know <laughs> Excellent. Well, moving on to the other section in the newsletter, the the planets, prettiest at night. Now, this is something that uh, you know Frontier Development did say that you know, it's not definitely going to be in the game. It's something that they're playing around with at the moment. But the idea that some of the most spectacular views you get of planet Earth are actually on the nighttime and looking down on the planet and seeing all the, the cityscapes across the globe lit up by all the night lights in the city. And they were trying to see whether or not they could incorporate that inside the elite dangerous universe but get it in such a way that you could instantly recognize which planets belong to which faction. Um, so by messing around with the orientation of the lights, you know, you'd instantly be able to spot that's an Imperial planet, or that's a Federation planet, or that planet is from you know, the Alliance. Again, for those people that haven't actually seen the uh, newsletter, the way they've done it is the idea they've got for the Empire is that it's all concentric rings, so zones where you've obviously got a central, very, very busy area.
3: Visually, if you haven't seen it, it looks a little bit like crop circles, almost, the Empire layout.
0: Yeah, absolutely. The Federation is more sort of on the US style of sort of blocks and zones and grids. So that's all rectangles and squares interlinked with straight lines. And then finally, the independent is uh, non-uniform shapes linked by winding, bending transport systems. Um, But again, the way that they've done it, obviously with the squares, the circles and the non-uniform shapes, it's very, very easy to spot which one actually belongs to which faction, so this is something that I really do hope they persevere with and get inside the game, because it's going to look amazing.
2: Yeah, the the interesting thing of all the three images is they're obviously depicting the same location, because if you notice, the images are are exactly the same in their actual shape. Yeah. Uh, but then the lights themselves in the centre is the, the difference. What I find interesting about the Federation one is that it's an extended Milton Keynes, so... <laughs> It just means that the entire Federation is a, a, a gigantic Milton Keynes at night, which uh, uh, obviously I'd not heard about in uh, uh, the faction guides. <laughs>
1: well, I'm glad they're paying attention. They, you know, they've thought that, yeah, we do need to you know, think about the planets, although landings aren't in it from the start. They still need to be able to texture these planets and, and put some life to them that can be seen from space.
2: Anything that defines different societies visually, in text, and with, uh, with the ships, and the other bits and pieces, is always going to look fantastic, and you know we're kind of looking at this, and you know, it does,
0: it looks beautiful,
2: so let's hope they implement it.
1: It was definitely my favourite part of the newsletter.
0: It did look very pretty, there's no getting away from it. Cool, and that's going to do us for the newsletter, what we're going to do now is going to move on to the, the DDF, uh, the design decision forum this week was all about crime and punishment, so we'll go through onto that, and also a little bit on weapons and shield poles.
4: I was overseeing the delivery of some slaves to the starports in Exios and a cleaning robot had just washed the floor but not left a warning sign. I had to run after a slave that was escaping and I slipped and fractured my wrist. I was delayed for 10 whole minutes while the Medicom repaired the damage. My time is billable, can I get compensation?
3: Yes, you can. I was on a regular trading room
2: back to Seoul and it was my job to repaint the outside of the ship. I was given the wrong kind of EVA
4: clamps. Nothing bad actually happened, but it did give me a fright. Can I get compensation? Yes, you can. I was checking some robots through customs when I distinctly heard an official calls the robots clanks. I was deeply offended, even though I'm not a robot myself. That's their word. You're not allowed to use it. Can I claim for moral outrage?
3: Yes, you can. At Cowell & McGrath, we are now taking any kind of legal action. No case too small, no justification too frivolous. If you've been lightly inconvenienced, embarrassed, or in any way put out, then someone should be made to give you money. Don't be a stupid clank. Uh,
4: excuse me?
3: Cowell and McGrath. Taking on any case. Playing the percentages.
0: Okay, so the DDF discussion this week was how to handle crime in Elite Dangerous. Uh, What we've done is we've broken it down into the four different sections. Um, Crime, what constitutes a crime. Detection, how you get found out in court. Uh, Exemptions, factions and jurisdictions. And finally, punishment. So the crimes that are listed in Elite Dangerous Collisions, which is collisions into other ships or structures, that's classified as a minor crime. Attack, where you open fire on another ship or a structure, that's classified as a serious crime. Murder stroke ship destruction, causing death or destruction of another ship or structure. This is classified as a very serious crime. Stolen goods, where you've been detected carrying stolen goods is a minor crime. Legal goods, carrying goods listed as illegal in that system is a minor crime. And the final one, obstructing justice, ignoring a request from the local authorities, such as stop whilst we scan you, or entering a restricted part of space. Everybody agree with those crimes? Anything that stands out? Anything that um, suggests to people that you know, things are a minor crime when they should be a serious crime?
3: I think for me, I just like the fact that there are different levels to crimes. I think one of the things in video games where you've had sort of, you know, crime and punishment elements um, is almost there has never been a sort of sliding scale. So if you play something like Grand Theft Auto, uh, if you bump into someone in the street or if you, you know, if you just slightly nudge another car within sight of a police officer, their only level of response is lethal response. There is no concept of, that was a little bit of a fender bender, maybe we won't gun this guy down. So I quite like, and I like the suggestion as well, that because you can sort of claim bounties on people, I'm assuming it will be a criminal act to shoot somebody who just has minor crimes. That's kind of an assumption that I'm making from this. Um, And I just think, yeah, it's it's nice that there's almost an element of common sense applied by the criminal system in this game.
2: I think there's something missing here, really. Um, it, It is very good, but You've got stolen goods, but how do you steal goods?
0: Well, I'm assuming that stolen goods come from after you've actually blown up a ship and picked them up, or potentially somebody else has already blown up that ship and you've stumbled along and found the stolen goods and then stolen them.
2: Okay, well that, that kind of covers what you know, sort of has happened in previous games. But what about theft itself? I'm just considering the idea that if there is a way in which you can nick someone's cargo without necessarily blowing their ship up.
3: Wouldn't it be great met? if you could issue, like, a remote command or something, hack into their ship and force them to dump their cargo?
2: I was thinking more about the initial test shots that we saw of the anacondas being attacked and how some of the cargo areas got damaged and cargo started escaping into space, and you actually hadn't destroyed the, uh, the anaconda itself, but you could make off with their, you know, their cargo. I guess, though, that's carrying stolen goods, isn't it? So, I would imagine so, yeah, absolutely. Are you, you're not prosecuted for the theft. So if you did that, so say, Foz, you and I go off and we go and take on David Braben's anaconda and we, we fire our lasers at it and we shoot our missiles and the, you know, the cargo starts to, to, to sort of spill out. We pick it up, we head for Lave Station, we dock, and we give all the cargo to John. Does that mean the Vipers are going after John? Not us.
1: I think that's what they said in a previous TDF. They were talking about how goods are marked as stolen and they stay marked. So if you just try and, you know, fence them to somebody,
0: they're always going to be classified as stolen goods the moment they leave David Braden's uh, Anaconda. They're stolen regardless of who uh, takes ownership of them.
2: No, I I think you've you've misconstrued me. There is the the point here is that John is then the person that would be followed because he's got the goods, whereas you. Uh, I see what you're saying get off scot-free. There's no... there's no, and Under this definition at the moment, there is no prosecution for the theft.
0: No prosecution for the theft, but you will be prosecuted for the attack, which is open fire on another ship or structure, which is which worse than
2: like carrying a, Yeah, stolen which seems good. like a more serious crime. Okay, <laughs> in, in a really boring way, then, I'm going to take this one stage further. You and I beat up David Braben's Anaconda, and then Chris comes in, being opportunist, he nicks the cargo clears off to Lave Station, gives it to John, and John then gets arrested. What happens to Chris?
0: The moment he picks up those stolen goods, they're listed as stolen. And in the Elite Dangerous universe, it will still be uh, listed as a crime, which will go against his criminal record for his reputation. But unless, and this is what something we'll come on to in detection, unless there's a a Viper that's actually close enough to Chris to scan him and realise that he's got stolen goods on board, then yes, he would get away with it scot-free.
2: So, but at the point, as I as I mentioned, at the point of fence. So after he's fenced the the stuff, then basically he's you know he's he's laughing, isn't he? He's Teflon
3: Chris. He's away with it. Because actually, funny enough, this is how I used to play I War Two. Um, you'd, I'd pick up an SOS for like a transport ship in distress. I would fly to that transport ship to save them, but I wouldn't save them until the pirates had attacked them enough that they dumped their cargo. Once they dumped their cargo. I would kill the pirates and then steal the, the um, goods.
2: Yeah, and also, yeah. I mean, you, you've also got the possibility, because in the past we've had things like recording missions and what have you in terms of you know, areas of, the, of space that need uh, you know, documented returns or whatever you know, back to a, a space station. Now, if you had a, a ship just happen to be in the vicinity and got Chris's number plate, hmm. no matter what they do, he's off scot-free. So I uh,
0: think... have just realized, actually, I mean, reading further into the DDF, Alan, you come stuck at the point where Chris enters the spaceport because the spaceport will actually scan his ship and realize he's carrying that, stolen that. goods. Right. OK, I understand now. OK. So maybe we get, we'll go straight into the detection part of this, which is how do you get found out and how do you get caught? So you personally are always aware of what fines and bounties are held against you. Um, A close-range scan of a ship will reveal any crimes it has been involved in and will list its current fines and bounties. These scanner items will be upgradable. So these scanners can be upgraded so you can scan from further away or the length of time your scan information is valid for can increase. Uh, This will be the primary way of detection by the authorities. So uh, a viper would need to get close to you to scan you and then you'd be reported for the crime. Space docks automatically scan the vessels for crime. So again, going back to what you were saying about Chris getting off scot-free, he'd be fine unless he docked at a spaceport. Some areas of space will have most wanted space bulletin boards that will scan ships in the vicinity and list their bounties or fines related to that ship. So that's the way that detection is currently going to work. What do people think about that?
2: Well, I like the idea of scanning. I like the idea that, you know, there might be cert- certain situations where they'll be doing stop and search to try and find... I don't know someone who's being transported into a system or smuggled out of a system aboard someone's ship. Uh, I think that's a great idea, and I think the you know just the principle of that you know, is quite nice. It it gives a it gives an element of story to to the whole situation really.
3: And I think it allows for the possibility of counter scanning in the sense that if you're someone who is going to be regularly having a lot of crimes kind of on your record. There's a suggestion in here that you might have the ability to upgrade your ship um, to mask scans, which I quite like the idea of that, that, you know, someone can then, presumably it's then like an arms race, that someone then has a more powerful scanner that can get through kind of ice or whatever and, and actually see what your criminal record is regardless. But I think, you know, again, it just it makes the whole thing really interesting.
0: OK, so moving on from a detection, we're going into exemptions, factions and jurisdictions. Uh, There are exemptions to crime that will arise through taking out certain missions or interaction with certain factions. So certain factions may, for example, give you a letter of mark against certain other ships. So you could get a letter of mark from the Empire that will allow you to go and shoot uh, Federation ships, for example, without getting the the crime of attack and maybe murder strokes, ship destruction against your record. Criminal records and fines will be split between the various faction space and the independent systems. So basically, if you... Commit a crime in Federation space, that's your Federation space record, that doesn't follow you into Empire space, where you'll have another record, or same with Alliance space. Um, for those independent systems, so independent systems that aren't linked to any of the other three factions, you will still have a criminal record that will only be valid in that local system. Once you leave that local system, it becomes cleared. Does that make sense to everyone? Yeah, absolutely. Sounds really good.
2: You know, the letter of Mark is the interesting thing here, isn't it, really? I mean, the letter of Mark will be, I think, will be something that will drive quite a lot of the game, really, because you'll be allowed, effectively, almost as as a sponsored, you know, acting individual for the faction that you choose to to affiliate with. I think the old days of running around being a bit of a federal officer and a bit of an imperial officer and maybe doing a few deals with the Alliance... I'm not so sure that's going to to wash, as as easily in the new game because under the letters of mark, you immediately have got this situation where you're you're accruing reputation in one and not necessarily in the others. And similarly, I you know I can kind of see from what's already coming through in the styles and the culture and the the you know, documentation that you know the players are going to drive this game. Uh, in terms of its conflict, and um, by affiliating with a faction, you, when a faction looks so much st- has so much stylistic difference to another faction, you kind of want to affiliate, you know?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just looking at the the actual letters here, it says that you have imperial letters of mark, you have federal contracts, and then you've got corporal sponsorships. Now, these deactivate the crime of attack, collision, and stolen goods within a designated jurisdiction against vessels and structures with open alliance to designated factions. That leads us on to the next question. Has it actually been explained what the current political landscape is amongst the, the various factions? So it seems from there that it's almost a state of cold war between the three of them.
3: It'll be interesting to see how far they take this, this kind of license to kill that you get. Because going back to the point I was making in the last podcast about, you know, how one nation's hero is kind of another nation's pirate or terrorist or however you want to look at it and it's interesting that if you so if you take on a federal job and you you make a kill against an imperial or something within federal space that doesn't count as a crime to the federal government but it would be interesting if they took it a step further this thing alan was saying about how you almost have to kind of you know fly your colors for for one nation or another it would be interesting if you do acquire a criminal record with the enemy um, or whether the enemy kind of understands that sometimes there is a need to use kind of mercenaries, that maybe this week you'll hire a mercenary, um, and that same mercenary might be doing a job against you the following week. It'd just be interesting to see how far they take it, I think.
2: I think as well it's worth bearing in mind, and I know it's not mentioned in this text, but it's worth bearing in mind the corporations too. You may well find that there's, there's more than three major areas that you can affiliate with. Um, I'm only speculating. Uh, I can't really do any more than that, but I think it's worth bearing that in mind, because certainly uh, the corporate element is something that I think will be developed more.
0: Perfect. Well, finally, on the exemptions, factions and jurisdictions, uh, there are some anarchic systems that have no meaningful concept of law. No crimes are reported in these systems, and commanders will travel here out at their own risk. So there are some places where you can go and have a complete free-for-all.
2: Yeah, well, we had that previously. I mean, if you look at the the gazetteer entries for Fector, for some of the other systems that are are there. I mean, if if anyone remembers all the way back to original Elite and how horrible Type Died was, or some of the other anarchy states, Type Died, I think, was a feudal, but uh, it you know it featured quite heavily in the idea of it being very lawless. I think the anarchy zones are kind of a game driver when when something when something is a disputed system it almost sounds with a trumpet, the idea that here be
0: the PvP. Yeah, absolutely. Although there is a a caveat to that in that it does say that even though these are anarchic systems, uh, authority vessels and structures can arrive at such systems. Whilst they are present, crimes are reported as if the appropriate faction permanently controlled the system. So you could be in one of these anarchic systems and then... Uh, One day, an Imperial cruiser turns up, or a few Imperial cruisers turn up on your doorstep, and then it's classified as Imperial space. And if you have a bounty on your head from the Imperials, then you're fair game.
3: First rule of Elite Dangerous Fight Club is you don't talk about Elite Dangerous Fight Club.
0: (laughs) Cool, okay. Well, that'll do us for the exemption factions and jurisdictions. Moving on to the punishments. Now, punishment comes in the form of fines, and these are based, obviously, on the crimes committed. These are small denominations. And moving on from fines, when the price goes up, it becomes a bounty. Now, bounties are large fines with additional rules. Um, they are factional or system-based. So, In other words, they'll be imperial bounties, alliance bounties, or federation bounties, or in fact, just local system bounties. Within that faction or system space, that ship may be freely attacked. The ship that causes catastrophic damage to a ship with a bounty will receive a data block that can be exchanged at the space station for the bounty. Does that sit okay with everybody?
2: The idea of the data block, I'm wondering, is the data block then
0: um, stealable in any way? Interesting idea. Commanders with bounties may be attacked outside the area of jurisdiction for a bounty data block, but this attack itself may be seen as a crime. The only place this doesn't count is Alliance, because the Alliance system honours the bounties of both the Federation and the Empires. So in other words, it's a bit of a bounty hunter's haven. So you've got fines, you've got bounties, You can also have an authority response, so you can be directly attacked by the local defense force. And the final punishment against multiplayer, so if your crime is against a human commander and not an NPC one, that results in a bounty, which will result in that player being visible and able to be matched against any other human commander in the all-players group. So basically, if you attack another human player and destroy them, the bounty goes on your head and you ping up like a bright beacon. To anybody that's in the all-player group and you're it's a free-for-all as to who wants to take you down first
2: well we're going to see some early celebrities
0: there aren't we well that could be your pvp yeah it depends where you go in terms of your
2: system i guess in uh, in terms of what you do so it'll be interesting to see the kind of um strafing attempts that people will make i, I would anticipate a few people going from one system to another so you basically you port into one system and uh Uh, then take out somebody and then go back to the anarchic system that you came from.
0: And then by being in that anarchic system, that's the best place that you can hide. I'm assuming you'd still appear in the all-player group, even in that system. So if you've got other players that are interested in PvP, you will then be visible to them.
2: Yeah, you will, but obviously because it's an anarchic system, they're more likely to encounter trouble trying to get to you.
3: Yeah, you could even lead people back into an ambush. So attack someone people see that you've pinged up you then go back to your system where you've got like five or ten buddies waiting to just gank them chris why are we giving away our tactics here? <laughs> the live <late> radio posse <laughs>
2: you've radio already told everyone skill.
3: you're gonna have a rubbish gun
2: yeah <laughs> you, you know who's going off and doing the you know the stalking horse job don't you uh, the one with the mining laser yeah you know who that is
0: as always, these, these proposals, you know, they are subject to change, so this is where we're starting from. Obviously, it gets thrown about in the DDF for a while, it goes back to the developers, and they will obviously make changes. And when the final proposal is put forward, then we'll bring that to you as well. In terms of the punishment, we all agreed that fines, bounties, obviously getting attacked by the authorities, and then obviously the multiplayer uh, free-for-all. Uh, does anybody want to see any other punishments brought in? Can anybody think of any other punishments that were brought in?
2: Well, you could you could bring the essentially bring the the human commander to the space station and um, when the authorities respond you know if they if they were trying to rather than shoot you down in in terms of the way in which chris was talking about uh uh the you know the, the response in grand theft auto um you could have uh, the commander brought back to the space station and then i don't know something done there
0: yeah one of the topics that came up was the, the thought of imprisonment in some way shape or form now Most people didn't want in a multiplayer game for you to be locked away for an hour's worth of game time. But that's not to say that they didn't want to see uh, NPCs uh, not being imprisoned, because the the thought of going to penal colonies in space or escorting prisoners from one place to another actually makes for some good mission types. So even though NPCs can be locked away, the thought of actually having your commander locked away didn't go down too well. Uh, But one of the ideas that was put forward, which... I thought was quite clever, is the idea of having your ship impounded. So and rather than impounding you, take away your ship and the only way you can get your ship back is to perform, you know, some sort of ASBO mission for the for the authorities. So they'd give you, I don't know, maybe say an ASBO ship of a, a bright orange signwinder, and you had to do a courier mission from one side of the solar system to the other. You know, once you complete that, then obviously you can get your ship back. The, uh, the orange sidewinder, however, would be a, you know, a shining beacon to everybody else who's playing the game that uh, you, know, you, have been, you, know, you have been imprisoned and had your ship impounded. What do you guys think about that?
1: Well, you could take up what would be the future thing. If you know the litter pickers, they'd send you out and you'd have to go and pick up dumped radioactives. Oh, that's
2: fantastic. I love that idea. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you go out on a bright orange sidewinder picking up rubbish. pay your dues
3: (laughs) but with the issue of sort of player choice it would be nice if there's a kind of way that you can almost skip out on your community service so if maybe you've been your ship's been impounded and maybe it was a you know like a not very valuable ship anyway or one you nicked or something (laughs) and the idea is you then you know take your asbo ship get it re-sprayed and just skip and, you know, just become a, an outlaw from that point. And that'd be quite interesting. You, you almost don't want to have this thing where, before I can carry on with my game, I have to go and do these really tedious and repetitive missions. Do you know what I mean? You almost want that choice. What, to bail out in
0: a, in a bright orange sign? To
3: window. bail out and just say, I'm not going to do this, you know, crappy
2: well, job. I guess, you know, in any game, when you attempt to um, lock the player into one set of responses and you attempt to lock the player into... You know a set of scenarios that they don't generally want to do. What usually happens is that the player doesn't play the game, so actually the the level of punishment and the type of punishment has to still be attractive in terms of yeah you know, the playing experience, so yeah, sending people out to collect rubbish in a bright orange sidewinder. You know, it just isn't going to be something that anyone's going to be interested in doing, really.
0: Oh, I disagree. I disagree. I mean, if it was okay. something that was in system uh, and it was you know, a severe a severe punishment and you didn't have the money to pay the fine uh, or the bounty, then you literally jump in the orange ship, sail to the other side of the system, scoop a few bits of radioactive and bring them back, and they give you your ship back total time, you know, 10 minutes. Then, yeah, I would sign up for it. I think that would be a giggle. As for running away in your purple uh, side, uh, your orange sidewinder, uh, I would hope they would have the decency to put a, a decent self-destruct on there. So the moment you leave the system, the thing just blows up.
2: Well, we kind of have to see, won't we? I mean, you know, <laughs> let's, look out for, let's look out for Orange Sidewinders. And, and <laughs> we'll all know that it'll be Foz, because <laughs> well, actually he you know, has done anything wrong. It's just because he thinks it's really cool gameplay. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> just a quick add-on in the DDF from last week's weapons poll. There's quite a few people who are complaining about the, the way that shields interact with physical objects. Another poll was launched this week, which took into consideration the effect that physical objects have on shields. Now, it was a very short poll. The poll results basically, ships, torpedoes, and bullets ignore shields unless they are shielded themselves. Ships ignore shields, torpedoes and bullets don't. And finally, nothing ignores shields, damage. Considering there was actually quite a lot of debate about this in the DDF, about ships being able to go through shields and ships crashing into ships, it was a resounding result for nothing at all is supposed to ignore shields, damn it. Uh, That had 75% of the vote. So even though it was a bone of contention, it seems that everybody's actually in agreement that nothing ignores shields. So that'll do it for the DDF this week. We'll go on back and we'll be into Community Corner.
3: We buy any ship. Bar none.
0: We buy any ship
3: bar none. Any model, any colour, any shape, any size, we we buy any any ship, bar none. We here at We Buy Any Ship, bar none, are ready to take your excess space travel vehicles off your hands. No more negotiating with Dutch Space Station vendors. We'll simply give you an estimated quote online, then, when you get here, we'll point out all the little dints and scratches that make the price get smaller and smaller before we actually give you any money. And the beauty is, we take any ship,
5: We we buy any ship,
3: bar none. Terms and conditions apply. We, buy any ship, excludes trading in any of the following vehicles. Adar, Anaconda, Asp, Bower, Cobra, Constrictor, Cruisers, Eagle, Falcon, Gecko, Griffin, Gear, Harris, Harrier, Hawk, Kestrel, Crate, Lanners, Lifters, Lions, Mantis, Merlin, Moray, Osprey, Panther, Puma, Python, Saker, Sidewinder, Skeet, Spar, Stonemaster, Tiersel, Tiger, Transporter, Turner, Viper, Wyvern, or any Imperial or Thargoid vessels.
0: Okay, and we're back with Community Corner, and the one thing that we've all agreed on on the podcast is that we'd really like to change the name of Community Corner. So if anybody's got a better idea of what we can call this section then please get in touch, info at com as soon as possible. What we're going to do now is go straight into a listener memory. This one comes from my older brother, Martin Forrester.
5: Hello. My name is Martin. I don't have a commander designate, as I quit Elite after my 14th death in 12 minutes. My idea of gaming nirvana did not include ending up as a frozen smear across the Lave space station's exterior. You'd think rage quitting the game so early would mean I have no memories to revisit. But you'd be wrong. You see, I was there to see a true obsession born. I wanted to play Jet Set Willy. Instead, I watched someone become an elite rated commander. Then, when we got an Amiga and I wanted to play Sensible World of Soccer or Cannon fodder, I was forced to watch the demo video of Frontier over and over and over and over again. I hated Amiga format after that. When my younger brother Chris convinced my parents to buy the actual game, I knew my time with the Amiga was over. In an effort to fill my time without Speedball 2 or Chaos Engine, I discovered rugby, and I've been playing ever since. Now, however, I've been listening to Lave Radio, and thinking the Elite Universe may be worth revisiting. I no longer live with my wee brother, so maybe, just maybe, I could take to the skies in my own right, and crash into whole new space stations.
0: Okay, so a big thanks to my brother Martin there, proving that you can never hold a grudge for too long. Uh, Did any of you guys have a similar sort of experience where you were monopolising the computer playing elite and you had other people in your household that wanted to play other games on it?
1: Yeah, me and my brother used to fight over it a bit. Um, It was pretty amicable most of the time. Normally it would be, I'm feeling a bit knackered now, you take over this milk run. Um, And then the other person would carry on.
0: But you'd at least be both playing the same game.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's the closest thing you'd get to a multiplayer version, really.
2: <laughs> it was never a problem for me. Um, my sister is quite a lot younger than I am, so and, and very different interests, so by the time that uh, she was really old enough to think about computers, I'd really got my own in my own room, so it wasn't something that, uh, that was an issue.
0: Excellent. Well, moving on from that then, Alan, what's going on in the writer's forum? Okay, interesting time. Um,
2: we've... We've started working further on the guidebooks, which uh, is always good. And also the synopsis submission process is moving on apace. Um, for anyone that, that doesn't know and isn't, isn't aware of this, if you're not checking the writer's uh, own blogs uh, to, to sort of see what their progress on their synopsis is and uh, how they're either incredibly happy or, or incredibly down in the dumps about it, um, what, what essentially happens is that each writer submits a, a short synopsis of their novel uh, to the frontier team, and they look through it, uh, go through any anomalies or any bits that they 're not sure will fit within the game universe, come back to you and make some suggestions about it, and essentially, you then go back and rewrite again and look at it you know look at it again, and then they come back and they you know, sort of quibble over a few other things now in that process, uh, the first look is usually quite superficial, so what what tends to happen is that you might well think that you 're doing really well and only a couple of things have been picked up. But then when, when the synopsis goes around to, you know, to the whole team looking for approval, when they obviously have time to look at it, it, it starts to get a little bit more problematic and you get obviously more things that, that creep in. Now what's interesting here is a, is a real positive thing here, is that it's quite clear from that process and from being involved in that process that the entire development of the game is very organic and we as the writers are very involved in that, that organicness, as it were. As decisions are made the things that we're working on in terms of fiction have to have to reflect those decisions. So some things might be, yes, we really like this idea, but we're not sure about that name. So maybe later on, we're going to reserve the right to change that idea and, and, and sort of look at it later or mm, not sure about this. Maybe you could go back and change it and work it because it doesn't fit in with what we're doing with these other things. So it's, you know, fascinating process as it goes through. I'm currently on, let's see, I've submitted twice, uh, I've got a whole list of things I've now got to go back and look at, which <laughs> will be fine. It's it, it's not a problem. And, and to be perfectly honest, it's it's quite funny, really, because when you go through this experience, some people, and not me, um, some people can can kind of, you know, if you if your writing idea, if your story idea is is problematized or is, is bounced back to you, sometimes it can be a bit of a an easy way to go, kind of get a bit irritated about it. I I really don't mind. I kind of like the fact that I put ideas out and people go, yes, no, no, yes, and bat the things back at me because then it, it makes me suggest other ideas. I don't tend to, to get sort of fixated or held on an idea. And that's not to suggest that, you know, that that's wrong to, to be so, but it's, it certainly makes from the fact that I don't hold on to ideas necessarily that, that hard until, uh, you know, until I, I sort of make a start on them. It makes the, the whole process quite interesting.
3: It's nice to have restrictions sometimes, almost, isn't it? Sometimes if you have too free a reign when you're writing something, it has a tendency to spill out, you know, almost everywhere. And sometimes when somebody else comes to you and says, well, you can't use that, or you must use this, then it actually makes you shape your ideas, perhaps in a more definite way than you you might do otherwise.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And it also gives you a very clear sense, certainly in this process, gives you a very clear sense that the guys at Frontier really want everything to fit together. You know, they're trying very hard to coordinate this and it's a lot of fiction. You know, there are thirty pieces of fiction across all the elements that are you know are coming together with with the game and they want it all to work and they want it to work with the game in itself. So really interesting to to be involved in. And yeah, you know, I you know, message to Michael Brooks right now, Hi Michael, I really don't mind when you send me back crits, okay? It's no problem at all. <laughs> Um, and I, you know, I'll never hold them against you. And they're they're fascinating information and really good for me to use. So yeah, you know, I think that's if you're listening, Michael. Obviously, you know, sorry about Dolph Lundgren last week. Okay. I was gonna
0: so say, to Alan, what extent? Only if you were so kind with my match-up writing.
3: <laughs> so I just want to ask. So Alan, to what extent is the devil in the detail with some of this fiction? Because. Obviously, the, the Frontier Development staff are looking at these synopses that are going forward uh, and where there are big kind of plot elements that make it into a synopsis. Obviously, they can pick that up, but surely there's going to be a point much harder down the line when people have got the full prose of their work written that somebody needs to kind of go through them almost with a fine tooth comb to pick out the odd little things that might clash between one book and another or between one book and the game that would only come up when you're actually writing things longhand so you know just as an example I mean the thing we have with the website with with the lave system being blue and someone says well, well lave probably wouldn't be blue you know you might as a writer put something in about someone noticing the kind of the, the, you know, the, the red plumes of fire coming out the back of the, of the spacecraft and later down the line someone will decide oh actually the engine engine's going to be blue kind of thing is that not the sort of problem that's going to come up later down the line where people make assumptions in their narrative that have to be somehow balanced but at that point everyone's kind of getting into the end game with their writing
2: Well, I guess we'll see I, I would anticipate that there will be a final sign off anyway in relation to the the, you know the the scripts so once you've finished your draft and you're happy with your draft I would anticipate that that has to then be approved and somebody will go through and and sort of make notes on it um, as things go and I've done that myself before you know looking at um, looking at something from a game point of view or a campaign point of view and looking at the whole you know extent of the writing to do that we do have a set of guidelines We've obviously got you know guide information for each faction and element. But we've also got a set of guidelines that are very specific. So when, play, um, when when writers ask questions about specific things, then they get specific answers about those things, and yeah, that's kept as a as a permanent stickied thread uh, within uh, within the forum. So you can immediately look up you know elements if you're you're kind of worrying about it. I would guess moving on down the line, then, yeah, you know, kind of going to have to play a few of these things by ear. And, and, you know, you have to think as well that the people are are doing the writing. They're all really intelligent people. Um, So, you know,
0: I think that's important. Speaking of talking to other writers, Chris, do you want to tell us a little bit about your interview with Dave Hughes?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Me and Dave Hughes, creator of the Elite Encounters RPG. Uh, went down to the Lave Station Casino to have a chat about what he's been working on uh, and how the Kickstarter went for him and his memories of Elite uh, and a little bit of an insight maybe for people into uh, tabletop games for those that maybe haven't played them before. So uh, it should be good.
0: Look forward to that. That will be out in the next week or so. Moving on, we've got a couple of listener questions this week. The first one comes in from Facebook from Johnny White, who says, "Uh, I'd love to hear how you guys believe the game should be played. In other words, keyboard, keyboard and mouse gamepad, joystick, etc. And also about displays. Should it be single head, dual head, multi head, Oculus Rift, external tablets for mapping, stroke navigation, hotkeys, and how would you keep all of your notes for mapping, and your trade routes, etc. I must admit, looking at the stuff that we've seen already, certainly the the in-space thing I think lends itself exceptionally well to being on the gamepad, because it's a far more we spoke about this the other week, it's far more of an arcade game than the previous incarnations. Certainly the Frontier and and first encounters, which was far more jousty. This is a game that's definitely going to be played on the gamepad in space. You guys agree with that?
2: No, I don't really. I
0: didn't think you would. <laughs> kind
2: of, I'm a, I'm an old school joystick sim player, and I loved X-wing, and I think X-wing was certainly, in terms of its control method, was the best control method that uh, of any space sim game that I ever played. And I'd I'd really like to be able to play this with uh, with good joystick and uh, and keyboard for, you know, all of the, the sort of data entry uh, elements and looking at the nav screens and everything else. Not a fan necessarily of the gamepad. I've got a couple of them. I've got some of those Xbox ones. They're nice enough, but I kind of prefer to be able to play on the joystick. I always felt that sim you know simulators were much better on the joystick.
3: See, I'm going to come in at the complete opposite end to Alan there because uh, for me, you know, my gaming's changed a lot over the years, and now... I'm very much, uh, I want to be able to sit on my sofa and play a game on the TV screen kind of gamer now. So for me, anything that involves needing like a desk surface uh, is just disastrous for a game. You know, if I have to use a mouse or if I have to have a place to put like a keyboard or attach a steering wheel, those are the games that just don't get played in my house. You know, for, for me, gaming is gaming is casual kind of lounging around time. Uh, and if I have to kind of sit up at a table to do it, it kind of feels like work uh, rather than relaxation. So for me, I'm very much on the, I want a gamepad, and I would only even like the sort of keyboard as a secondary input device yeah. on the basis that I actually have a, a wireless keyboard that sits on the sofa. So that wouldn't be a problem. But I, so I, I, it's not a game I want to have to sit up uh, at a workstation to play.
2: Well, I guess, you know, for anyone that's watched any of my video updates on the Kickstarter will know that most of my gaming rig, which is also my music studio, is up in the loft so <laughs> that's where i'll be playing from
0: for me i must admit the peripherals i'd want to use with elite is pretty much all of them i think each one of them has a has a place within the game again what i said before about the control being very good for space combat you think about using the analog sticks to actually fly your ship and then using say i don't know the directional buttons to control your energy management so depending on you know, where you're getting attacked you can press say you're getting attacked and Starboard side, you can press the right directional button and push all of your energy to your shields on the right-hand side of your ship. Uh, you've got plenty of buttons on a controller for all the different weapons and missiles that you've got. But once you're docked in a space station for manipulating the galaxy map, and obviously the ones in Frontier and First Encounters were all 3D, you know that worked exceptionally well for a mouse. And typing things in for bulletin boards and stuff like that, or you know jumping from screen to screen in space stations... Yeah, that's where your your keyboard could come into play. So for me, I think you could actually get away with using uh, using all of them.
1: Yeah, I, um, I I'm going to agree with Alan. I think um, it's going to be uh, flight stick and keyboard for me.
0: Really, that just seems so outdated to me.
1: Yeah, no, I mean I do. Appre- I'd probably give the controller a go, but I do have a flight stick because I you know I think it suits that kind of. That kind of flying you know the 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 rolling and then the pitching, and as far as things like um, monitors go, because this question has been quite popular, a lot of people want you know say three or maybe even more monitors, um, I guess so you can see out the left mm. and right of your cockpit. that doesn't really interest me too much to be honest, I find it hard enough to concentrate on a single monitor, right. never mind three of them um, but if I was going to have an extra like monitor. I'd like maybe it could have scanning information on it, you know, move the scanner so it's larger and on, an, on a separate screen. I mean, you now could that also
2: would look at a, a role for the pad, you know, I, I'd be quite happy to uh, have something that I could, if I, if I attach my, my Kindle Fire to the computer, it'd be great to have the trading information on the Kindle Fire, that'd be awesome.
3: It's worth bearing in mind, though, that modern game controllers and gamepads tend to have motion control in them, so there's no reason. I think what I'd like to see, really, is is choice, so that you can almost bring whatever controllers you want to this game. So if you want to play it with a stick, you can, but maybe the stick controls are also emulated in a gamepad that, that measures kind of roll and pitch, because certainly, I'm not sure about the ones that connect to PCs, but certainly, the obviously, the things like the Wii and the, the PS3 controllers... You know, will track rotation speed. and things. Um, mm-hmm. But I like, I mean, what Alan's talking about with the, uh, you know, having the, the Kindle Fire as a separate screen. It's actually really interesting because that's very close to what they've done, obviously, with the Wii U, where they've given you a controller with your own screen on it. And they are doing that with a lot of games now, of bringing kind of secondary display information down onto the controller screen. So it's a very interesting concept.
0: Yeah, I suppose just. Have interest, guys, how many monitors is everybody working with on their home setup? I know i 've got two here
3: Chris I have a laptop,
0: <laughs> so that'd be one i'm assuming yeah yeah uh, John i'm guessing you 've got one as well
1: uh, i've got a laptop, but i've got a secondary monitor if I need it
0: and Alan, I assume you 've actually got a multi monitor set up with all of your music editing and everything else. It depends
2: yeah with the with the upstairs system there's currently two monitors rigged up to the upstairs system. I'm looking at how I could fit three onto the uh, onto the graphics card, which um, would obviously require something of a splitter to to make that work. Um, just looking at that at the moment, and it it's comparable in terms of space. I have three monitors here that I could use, but it's it's you know dependent on space and everything else. Um, usually, though, for you know for day-to-day stuff, I'm using my laptop or uh, or the MacBook that I work have nicely provided. Um, or um, I've got my little Kindle Fire. So, you know, I mean, that that also has a, a VGA converter output, so I can actually plug that into something else as well.
0: I mean, the tablet idea is definitely an interesting one. I mean, with this all being uh, through online servers, there, there's nothing stopping Frontier development from setting up, say, a, a local system map. So they've already talked about having almost like a, a heat map to tell you you know, what ships have been destroyed in what system, what pirates are where. Uh, et cetera, et cetera, and local trading information. There's nothing stopping you from having you know, a website that you can access through a tablet uh, that will give you all of that information. So uh, having an iPad, I think that could be something that could be quite useful. Well, I quite like the
2: idea of, you know, if, if there was news feeds or if there was updates on, on prices and stock, then that kind of information I'd love to, to just drop off to, to the Kindle because then essentially, you know, I can go anywhere and keep the Kindle set into the game. And you can see, you know, kind of what's happening in, you know, in-game, even though you're not anywhere near something that can, you know, can play it, which would be really cool. You know, I'd, I'd like to be able to see the latest news on what's going on in the Empire, you know, from from the system that I'm in and, you know, for, on my Kindle whilst I can't necessarily play at that point in time, you know, I might be snatching a break between lectures, But it would be great to to see, you know, and and to be involved in what's
3: going on.
1: I think I've actually put these questions to Michael Brooks just straight after the Kickstarter, um, you know, asking about developer APIs, just opening up maybe some of the the server data so that you can have things like you just referred to. You can have stock data and also you'd be able to find out which of your friends are actually currently playing, uh, little things like that.
3: It'd be nice to get a heat map almost of the systems that you sort of regularly frequent
1: I suppose at some point, though, you've got to say, how much is too much information? I mean, we've already had people saying things like, um, you know, should we have communications based on real physics? And then, but straight away, they said, no, you're going to be able to communicate instantly with everybody everywhere, because obviously it'd be problematic for uh, multiplayer, and it would push people towards other solutions, such as TeamSpeak and things like that.
5: Exactly.
1: So, you know, they're just... You know, no doubt they're probably looking at things um, and seeing, you know, what stuff can they provide in game. You know, can you uh, uh, on Frontier? You used to be able to jump into a system and you could actually send a, a message to um, a station without actually docking and request a price list. Mm, yeah. You know, are they just going to do something like that, or can you just do a request? You know, maybe a couple of systems across. and and find out what the the current prices are.
2: Well, I'm wondering if you could connect this with the data block idea that we were talking about earlier, because if, for example, if you looked at Interstellar News, and I know it's already been stated that we're not going to have newspapers in the same form, but, you know, there is still going to be Interstellar News, and there's still going to be updating information. Now, if hyperspatial travel within the game, and I recognise that players obviously can talk to each other within the game in, in any space, but if hyperspatial travel within the game environment, i.e. the NPC information and so on and so forth, um, is quite difficult to pass between systems, then this idea of data blocks is really interesting because you could then expand it so that effectively a player hyperspaces into a system and then the first player to hyperspace into a system with a particular set of information, suddenly that system is aware of that information. So that means all players in that system are aware of that information, which I think is you know, a possible method by which you could, again, you can, you know, pipe that information off
3: mm. to
0: uh, an API unit. Excellent. Now, I'm guessing that uh, I'm certainly no expert on the the Oculus Rift. Does anybody else have any insights into it? Obviously, it's a VR, virtual reality headset.
3: I think it has head tracking as well. So uh, it tracks your the movement of your head as you look up, down, left and right.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I know it's, uh, it projects quite a big screen in front of you, but not only obviously in front, but uh, to the peripheral as well which seems to uh, compensate a lot for the the motion sickness that people have been experiencing with virtual reality headsets. So, it hasn't been released yet, but is this the sort of game that you think would work very well for an Oculus Rift headset?
2: I think it would be amazing on an Oculus Rift headset, however as to whether I'm prepared to either A, invest in one or B, take the time and trouble to climb into my attic and then put (laughs) on an Oculus Rift headset and then immerse myself in the game and then have Karen shouting at me, um, and, uh, not, not hear her at all because obviously I'm completely in another universe. Um, I, I don't think, I don't think I could, uh, you know, I don't think I could financially afford, you know, the, the kind of court case or litigation or, um, selling of the house that that would, um, that would engender.
3: <laughs> I don't think you'd need to go up there, would you, with the Oculus Rift? I, mean, I don't know totally about how it connects, but there must surely be a way of, uh using the oculus rift in your living room connected to a pc that's up in the attic
1: yeah but he's going to look a bit of a muppet i mean (laughs) fumbling around the living room you know bumping into furniture and stuff i mean it's going to end up on youtube isn't it
2: alan we've got guests
1: (laughs) (laughs) what
3: What would you want the oculus rift to do in elite because there's almost two schools of thought that you kind of want that you either want the ship to steer you know are you is your camera view looking out the front of the ship so as you're turning your head you're kind of steering with brain control or are you looking around your cockpit in which case your ship is still flying forward and you're still shooting forward so most of the time you're just going to be looking in one direction
2: yeah i think it's looking around the cockpit isn't it but of course that would require um the kind of programming to to you know to enable that if it was moving with your head then essentially we're in a different game and it's called
0: firefox yeah yeah absolutely
3: (laughs) think in russian
0: Okay, well, I'll just do it for the first listener question. The second listener question comes in from my mum, and trust me, nobody was more surprised than me to find out she was a regular listener. She says, "Hi guys, you mentioned in episode two the concept of vipers hiding inside the cargo bay of an anaconda. I was just wondering what would happen to those ships and pilots if the anaconda was blown up whilst they were still inside." Uh, now, firstly, this was more of a, a throwaway, wouldn't it be cool if sort of thing? We have nothing from Frontier Developments that says yes, this is even possible. Uh, I'm guessing it's the sort of thing that would be quite difficult to program. Hypothetically, however, I'm guessing that uh, the anacondas would launch the vipers as soon as it entered the the battle. Something the size of an anaconda is not going to be killed with just one shot, so there should definitely be time to launch the vipers. But it would be an interesting scenario if, say, a lucky shot got through and damaged the cargo bay controls, meaning that the ships were trapped inside. It would be quite fun to hear the comms chat from that group as they watch the cargo bay disintegrate around them. And them shouting at the anaconda pilot to get them out of the situation. What do you guys think?
2: I think that Foz, you have a rather sick sense of humour. If you think that that kind of chatter would be fun, um, this probably goes down to your description of famine being fun as well. Uh, however, uh, the you know the scenario is you know is interesting in terms of it being either a player response because it would be. I think we talked about the cue boat idea, which for anyone that you know, doesn't know their uh their, their naval history q boats were essentially were ships pretending to be easy ducks for the the german u-boats um and what they actually were was you know bristling full of guns so what would happen is that the, the u-boats would sneak up on them to try and nick their cargo and it turned out that they actually had lots and lots of guns and could defend themselves so um within this situation i mean you know if you had one anaconda that uh, was set up in a fleet that actually had all the fighters on the inside and then you know they all launched and uh, uh, and sort of ambushed the people who'd come in to do the ambush in the first place that's obviously that's that's cool the idea of blowing everything up on the inside beforehand i think probably gameplay wise the developers are probably like that not to happen <laughs> you know having one person go darn it i lost my ship or having 20 people go darn it i lost my ship and i didn't even get a chance to fire at anything might be you know might be sort of a bit of a, a bad thing for them but in terms of realism they you know they're probably quite interested in uh, you know how this this circumstance could happen
1: and i think this actually opens up a bigger question of itemization is it going to be possible to transport ships as items as commodities in their self so for example in frontier you had just the regular commodities you had things like fertilizer robots computers but by the sounds of it david braben said that he's looking to you know make these markets more real um, and so that you are going to have a situation where um, for instance there's a requirement for food on a planet uh, that you can take advantage of but all of these planets and all of these stations are going to have shipyards and I guess the question is, are the shipyards going to need to be stocked with parts and with ships?
2: Well, also, you know, some of the major corporations are obviously going to be shipbuilders. So, yeah, I guess, you know, Falcon Delacy might need to run his latest batch of Cobra Mark IVs from Beta Hydra to, uh, to to Sol. And if he does, then he's going to have to put them in anacondas or or, or pythons or something else. And if that's the case, then, you know, it's fair game and fair commodity, isn't it?
1: Just following on with that, it's, um, they've made it clear that uh, people are going to own multiple ships. So, yeah, can, is it going to be possible to put your, your personal Viper in your Anaconda?
2: Well, that would be quite cool, wouldn't it? I and mean, it would certainly, we've already discussed the fact that it's a bit rubbish, mm. or we can't see at the moment, we can't see at the moment the reason why anybody would want to be an Anaconda pilot. Mm. If you could be an anaconda pilot, you know, if, if the anaconda is a quite a, a high commodity investment and you can be an anaconda pilot and you can chuck a viper in the anaconda, you can switch to when you get into a fight, that's quite cool.
3: And it's interesting future proofing as well. I mean, if they are talking about making the ability to go down to planets, something that happens later, is an anaconda something you're going to take through the atmosphere of a of a planet? Or are you realistically going to get yourself into some sort of launch just to fly down to the surface. And it almost kind of resurrects the old interplanetary shuttle, which never got any love because you couldn't ever go anywhere in it. But actually, suddenly, if you need like a cheap secondary vessel so that you can dock in small stations or go down to the planet's surface, the interplanetary shuttle comes into its own suddenly.
2: Well, also, if we go back to the crime and punishment section that we were talking about earlier. If we were looking at stolen cargo, then if you've got the opportunity to dock a, a smaller ship with a larger ship, then you have the opportunity to do cargo transfer outside space stations.
1: Mm. Oh, Interesting, yeah.
0: Okay, well that's going to do us for the listener questions this week. A um, couple of quick shout-outs before we go. Lave Revolution, Alan, whereabouts are you currently sitting?
2: Uh, just under six thousand two hundred pounds. So the film budget is starting to to move on. What I would suggest to people, and I've I've said this to a few people recently, is you know we're in the middle of the Kickstarter at the moment. So you know usually the middle is the the sort of the bit where where things get a little bit slow. And I'm I'm not worried about that. Well, I'm ecstatic to be perfectly honest because I get to write my book, which I think is going to be you know an awesome experience for me to write, and hopefully an awesome experience for you guys to read. But the key thing here is. I kind of need anybody who uh, is interested I'm not necessarily asking you to to pledge money if you do then that's wonderful and I'm I'm really grateful for that but if you share your Facebook status for an hour if you tweet about it for for 10 minutes that helps every little thing helps right now so every every sort of bit of, of promotion every bit of talking to anybody that might be interested is really good so please you know if uh, if you want to get involved then uh, then do and if you happen to be sharing the the link to the kickstarter then excellent that's that's really helpful to me
0: perfect stuff and i know uh, speaking personally i'm certainly going jaunty towards the end of the uh, the kickstarter one thing i love about all these kickstarters is just the pure variety they bring into the elite universe so uh, obviously you've got kate russell's audiobook we've got the audiobook that's going to be coming with your stuff alan but uh, to have a short film made, I think, would just be the icing on the cake. So, uh, 10,000 is what we need to get into the the short film. So, if you can, guys, jaunty up or spread the word, and let's try and make sure that we have a Lab Revolution short film. Uh, we've also been contacted this week by Mechnuts. Now, Mechnuts are an Aussie podcast about the Mech Warrior franchise. Uh, they got in touch basically saying they're quite a similar sort of outfit to us. You know, They started their own podcast to talk about the game that they loved as it was still in development. Um, some of them are big fans of the Elite franchise and they spend about 5 or 10 minutes a week talking about the Elite game in their Mech podcasts. You can check them out at www.armed, That's www.armed.net.au. And finally, just a quick shout-out to all the people that have actually done the decent thing and given us a nice reviews on iTunes. Those people are Mobius, Barley Ali, City Slicker, Sandy, Puny Human in a Hat, Zimrich, and Bewilderbeast. Uh, thank you very much, guys, for spending the time and giving us some reviews on iTunes. Okay, well, that's going to do it for this week, guys. All that's left to do is power down the Sidewinder. Playing us out this week, it's Two Quiet Suns and their track, Voyage. Have we actually got a better name for Community Corner? No, you keep asking, we keep giving you suggestions, and they're usually rubbish. (laughs) Maybe that should be the first debate. Come up with a better name for Community Corner.
3: Circle Jerk of Trust.
0: (laughs) I I actually like that one. (laughs) If you think I'm saying the circle jerk of trust every week, it just ain't happening. (laughs)